0: I'm Arie Cohen, and this is Daf Shui. Give me 40 minutes or so, and I'll give you a daf or so. Well, today is the 143rd day of the war. There's still 134 hostages in Gaza. About 30,000 Palestinians have been killed. About 1,400 Israelis have been killed. That's um, on both sides, soldiers and civilians. About a third of the... Palestinians that are killed were children? It's looking bleak. Hopefully there'll be a a some sort of a ceasefire as soon as is humanly possible. Though it's looking bleak. So all we have left is learning Torah. And you know, screaming in the streets for ceasefire and hostage exchange. And now for a special request. If you enjoy this podcast and learn something from it, or are just distracted by it from doom-scrolling for a bit, I want to ask you to help support the podcast. We are a pretty lean operation. We have a walk-in closet, a mic, a laptop, a Gemara, and a make-believe Beit Midrash of thousands. Some of you have been supporting Daf Shui for a while, and we really appreciate that. Thank you so much. You can support Duff Shui Weekly Duff by going to our Patreon page, wwwpatreoncom Duff Shui, which is also linked on the podcast page, and become card carrying members of the Bait Madrash. Remember, we are not one of those corporate Duff Shui outfits. We're more of a rickety storefront skeeble Duff Shui. Thank you so much. Who's Duff? Who's Duff? Who's that? Duff? Who's that? Duff? Well, we're starting three lines from the top on 119A in the layout that was publicized by the Widow and Brothers Ram in Vilna in their printed version of the Shas. Lo, these 150 years ago. Amar Mar. We are returning to a line from the B'rita that we learned on 117a. The sons of those who complained and the sons of the Korites took their portions in the land by the merit of their maternal and paternal grandparents. However, there is another B'rita which challenges this and says that they merited their portion on their own. Lakasha. Ha commandamar Ha commandamar li This is not a difficulty. The breita that says that they merited because of their grandparents holds that the land was divided amongst those that left Egypt. While the one that holds that they had merited their portion on their own holds that the land was divided according to those who entered the land. V'e hava kasha. Or, if you want, I might say that both of those opinions accord with the one who says that the land was divided amongst those who entered the land, and still it is not difficult. Ha'dahavi benesrim, ben benesrim. In one braytah, the one where they merited on their own merit, they were 20 years old when they entered the land. In the other braytah, they were not 20 years old and therefore had to merit on their grandparents' account. We now continue with the next line in the Mishnah. And since Slavchad was a firstborn, he took a double portion, as is the biblical law of the firstborn. Why would Slavchad have taken a double portion? The double portion would be in the land of Israel, which at the time he was alive was something he should get. Or even would get Raui, but it was not actually in his hands. This is called Raui. And a firstborn does not inherit in the Raui, the Shura property, as he inherits in property which is under ownership or of Amarav Yehudamar Shmuel, Beate Dot Ohalim. Av Yehuda said in the name of Shmuel, the extra portion is referring to movable property, like ten pegs and not real estate in the land of Israel. Rabbi challenged Rabbi Yehuda in the name of Shmuel. Rabbi Yehuda, that is the Tana, the earlier Palestinian sage, said, The daughters of Tzlafchad took four portions, as it says, and the lots that fell into the Menasheite tribe were ten. The implication being that they inherited the land itself, and not just the movable property. Ella Amar Eret Yisrael Rather, Rabba said The land of Israel is Muchzek That is actually held and owned From prior to entering the land And here the Meir Naham HaMeiri The 13th century, 14th century Provencal sage, rabbi, commentator, explains that the land of Israel is muhzak, meaning that since the prophets and being Moshe promised it to them, so that promise itself was like an actual chazaka, that promise itself was an actual acquisition, so the land of Israel is muhzak that is actually held. A challenge is posed. Rabbi Shimon Hashikmoni, Hayali Chaver, mitamide Rabbi Akiva. Rabbi Chidka said, Shimon the Shikmoni. Parenthetically, a Shikma is a sycamore tree. It is unclear what it means that Shimon was called a Sycamore Guy, and whether it was a good thing or a bad thing. But anyway, Rabbi Chidka said Shimon the Shikmoni was my friend among the students of Rabbi Akiva. V'kach haya Rabbi Shimon the Shikmoni Omer Yodea haya Moshe Rabbeinu shebenot slavchad yershotein. Avoloh haya Yodea imnotlot chelek b'chora imlav. Thus would Shimon the Shekmoni say, Moshe, our master, knew that the daughters of Tzlavchad would inherit their father's portion. However, he did not know if they should take the portion of the firstborn also. And further, it was appropriate that the Torah portion of inheritance would be written by way of Moshe. However, the daughters of Tslavchad merited and it was written by way of them. Rishon Amol asked, Well, actually Moshe wrote it, but they meant that actually it was the daughters of Tslavad who leveraged Moshe to write it in this specific way. Koshesh <laughs> Moses, Moshe, our master, knew that the punishment of the person who gathered wood on the Sabbath was death. As it was said, the one who desecrates it shall surely die. However, he did not know in which manner of execution was the punishment to be carried out. Here, the Bright is referencing the story, which is found in Numbers fifteen thirty-two to 36 Once the Israelites were in the wilderness, they came upon a man gathering wood on the Sabbath day. Those who found him as he was gathering wood brought him before Mo- Moses, Aaron, and the whole community. He was placed in custody, for it had not been specified what should be done to him. Then God said to Moshe, The man shall be put to death. The whole community shall pelt him with stones outside the camp. So the whole community took him outside the camp and stoned him to death as God had commanded Moshe. While Moshe, according to the Breitah, knew that the gatherer had committed a capital offense from the Sabbath prohibition in Exodus 31, he did not know what the exact punishment should be. And it would have been appropriate for the Torah portion of the gatherer of wood to have been written through the agency of Moshe. However, the wood gatherer was accountable, and it was written through him. Lamidcha, and now we turn the page. Shemagalgalim zchut al chayav. This is to teach that merit is generated by way of the meritorious, and accountability by way of the accountable. We might note here that there's an interesting use of this not so often used rabbinic phrase, which seems to mean that a meritorious deed is done by way of the meritorious, and vice versa. An example of this usage is in the early Midrash, the Sifri to Numbers, discussing the commandment to raise a fence around the roof of one's house. Torah warns that the reason to do this is lest someone fall. The Sifri commenting on the doubling of the verb to fall, hanofel, says that the one who fell should have fallen for some other thing that they did. But accountability is generated by way of the accountable. That is, it is something of a twofer. The one who did not put up the fence is accountable for the loss of life because he did not put up the fence. At the same time, the faller died for some other deed. Our case here, and it is not unique, makes the gatherer accountable for the legal decision that a gatherer of wood is sentenced to death and vice versa with the daughters of Tzlovchad. And we turn the page 119b. The stam, the anonymous voice of the Talmud, then asks if the land of Israel was actually owned prior to the entrance to the land. That is, that it was acquired or owned by those leaving Egypt, that is, it was Mucheket. What was the doubt that Moshe had? The daughters should obviously have inherited the land. <laughs> The Stammer replies that this itself is what the doubt was about, whether or not the land was actually owned or held. For it says, I will bring you into the land which I swore to give to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and I will give it to you for a possession, I, God, and that's Exodus 6, 8. It is for you a possession from your forefathers. That is, it is an inheritance for you, but you cannot bequeath it to the next generation. Or perhaps, O dilma that you can bequeath, but you do not inherit it. In this case, it was not acquired prior to entry to the land. And in the end, they understood it to mean both. So the word morasha is that which is being played with. Yerusha lechem u'morishin ve'nan yorishin. It is an inheritance from your ancestors. And also, the land can be bequeathed, but was not inherited. The legal difference to the fact that it was an inheritance but was not inherited is that the inheritors do not get an extra portion for the firstborn, which only happens in the case of inheritance. So those coming into the land of Israel inherited the land, but it was not inherited to them. By those who left Egypt. So, therefore, those who came into the land did not get an, a double portion, but they could bequeath the land. So, the land was bequeathed to them, but they did not inherit it, but they could bequeath it. Now, that's perfectly clear. This is what is written in Torah at the end of the Song of the Sea, Exodus 15, 17. You'll bring them. You'll plant them on the mount of your estate. It does not say you'll bring us, but rather you will bring them. This teaches that they were prophesying and not knowing what they were prophesying. They, the generation who crossed the Red Sea, were prophesying in the song that it was not them who would inherit the land, that is, be brought and planted on the, quote, mount of your estate but rather the next generation. You'll bring them. This week's podcast is brought to you by OAJGG, old Ashkenazi Jewish guy's gym. Two schvitzes, no weights. Ever get that feeling that you should exercise more? Followed by an even stronger feeling that getting up from the couch could actually be dangerous? Well, we're the place for you. OAJG. Our motto is, no pain, no pain. Our philosophy is the three shins. schwitz. shh, you're playing the music too loud, a man can't hear himself think, and something else that begins with shh that I can't remember right now. When you've tried the rest and all they want you to do is schlep this thing here, schlep that thing here, bend down, push up, it's time to try the next thing. O-A-J-double-G, old Ashkenazi Jewish guys, Jim. The Talmud continues discussing the story of the daughters of Tzlovchad, Numbers 27-2, story which we've been talking about for the past couple of pages. And they stood before Moshe and before Elazar the priest, and before the chieftains, and all the community. Efshar amdu Could it be that they first stood before Moshe and he didn't say anything and then they went to the priests and the chieftains who were all of lesser rank and seemingly knew less? In the story, as you may remember, Moshe does not know how to answer and he brings the question to God. The Midrash here is pushing on the fact that first it says Moshe, and then Elazar the priest, and then the chieftains, rather than assuming that if there was an answer, Moshe would have known it. So rather, says Rabbi Yashia, cutting up the verse and interpreting it. Moshe was the last one they asked. Abba Hanan, Amar Mishim Rebbe Lezer, be beter midrash yoshvin kulan ab hanan explains this differently in the name of rabbi Eliezer. they were all sitting in the beit midrash the study hall and they the daughters stood up before all of them bmai kumy mar savar cholkin kavod la talmid bimkom harav umar savar en cholkin What were they, Rabbi Yashia and Rabbi Eliezer, disagreeing about? One said that one should show respect to a student even in the presence of the master. And the other one said that one should not show respect to the student in the presence of the teacher. So the discussion is an interesting one. It has to do with whether or not if you have a teacher and a student sitting together, and the student, of course, already is part of, you know, the guys, the D in the court or the yeshiva, or he's not, it's not just like a an adolescent, but a a grown adult, then does one show respect to the student even when the teacher is there or not? Is that considered disrespect or is that considered respect? And the law is one does show respect and the law is that one does not show respect. Then one law is challenging the other law. That is, they contradict each other. No, says the Stam, they do not contradict each other. Hadapaleg le'rabbe yikra, hadalapaleg le'rabbe yikra. The law which says that one should show respect to a student in the presence of the teacher, is in a situation where the teacher themselves is showing respect to the student or students. And explains the Bomb, In the case of Moshe and the daughters of Tzlochad, it was well known that Moshe showed respect to all of Israel. The other law, which says that one should not show respect to the student in front of the teacher, is in a situation where the teacher does not show respect to the student. Tana darshaniyotem, It was taught in a Braita. The daughters of Tzlavchad were smart, well-versed in the skill of reading midrashically, and pious. Chachmaniyotem, shelafi The Talmud is now going to back up these claims. First, they were smart since they spoke at the appropriate time. For Reb Shmuel Bar Yitzchak said, This teaches that Moshe, our teacher, was sitting and interpreting and teaching the Torah portion about Leveret marriage. For it says, in Torah, should brothers dwell together. That verse is in the context of the Leveret obligation. That verse continues and one of them die and have no son, the wife of the dead man shall not become wife outside to a stranger. So the daughters of Slavchad said to Moshe, If we are considered as a son, then give us an inheritance like a son. If not, then our mother should be married to a lever. In other words, they were smart because they did a typical rabbinic move. Either you do one or the other of these options. Moshet, immediately Moshe approached God with their predicament, as it says, and Moshe brought forth their case before God. They were versed in the skill of reading madrashically, for they would say, If he had a son, we would not have spoken. However, we know, says the Gemara, that there is a bright that says, If he had not had a daughter, then we would not have spoken. Rabbi Yirmiya says, no, you should erase the word daughter. Abayah says, Even had there been a daughter of a son, we would not have spoken. This is, as we learned earlier, that the daughter of a son inherits together with the sons. They were righteous. This means that they only married those who were appropriate for them? Rabbi Eliezer taught: Even the youngest of them didn't shana. Rabbi Eliezer taught: Even the youngest of them didn't marry before the age of forty, and that is a sign of piety. Ini v'ha amarav chista nisait puchuta mi'bat esrim yoledet ad shishim bat esrim yoledet ad arba'im bat arba'im shuv einay yoledet. Is this true? But Rav Chista said, if a woman married before 20, she gives birth till 60. If she married at 20, she gives birth till 40. If she married at 40, she can no longer give birth. This challenges what Ribble Ezra Ben Yaakov taught, that they didn't marry until 40. And that seems to imply that it's not a sign of piety to not marry until 40. <laughs> Rather, since they were righteous, a miracle happened for them. As the Torah says, a man from the house of Levi went and took the daughter of Levi. And now we're going to go a little bit further on to 128. At that time, Yochebed was 130 years old. Can it be, the Gemara asks, that a 130-year-old woman was called a bat, a daughter or young woman? And it says that the, the man from the house of Levi went and took the daughter, bat of Levi. For Barchanina said, This refers to Yochevit who was conceived on the way to Egypt and was born within the walls surrounding Egypt. As it is written, whom she bore to Levi in Egypt. The birth was in Egypt, the conception was not in Egypt. Why did the Torah refer to her as a bat, a daughter or a child? Ama Rav Yehuda Bar Zvida said this teaches that the physical signs of adolescence appeared. Her flesh grew softer, wrinkles or curves started to spread in her skin, and beauty returned to its place. The verse says, And he, that is, Amram, took her, took the daughter of Levi. Why say took and not return, since they had already been married? Amar Rabbi Yehuda Barzvida, Mlamay jasa la maseli kuchin, Hoshiva b'apiryon, Varon u'Miriam Mishorim Lefana U'malachei sharet omrim, Eim habanim Rabbi Huda Bar-Zvida said, This teaches that he did an action of acquisition. He sat her in a palanquin. Moshe and Aaron sang before her. And the angels of the service said, The mother of the children is happy. Okay, we're going to stop here. Thank you so much for coming and joining me in the Beit Midrash in the Closet. You can follow me on Twitter at Miklat. I-R-M-I-K-L-A-T until the place burns down or they turn off the lights uh, thanks as always to my wonderful producer Eli Unger Sargon check out his podcast for Cubits and my wonderful Chabruta Charlotta van Robert and the comms team here at Daf Shui Shachar Cohen be well be safe be healthy come back hopefully we'll see you next time